You know, success doesn't come from having all the answers. Success comes from having the courage. And ultimately, it was those moments where I was being tested. And I think those moments of testing are how much do you want it? I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Cindy Eckert. Over her career in healthcare, Cindy started and sold two businesses for more than $1.5 billion. She's best known for having co-founded and sold Sprout Pharmaceuticals, which created the first ever FDA-approved drug for low sexual desire in women, also known as the female Viagra. Now, Cindy's helping other female entrepreneurs looking to disrupt the healthcare industry with her investment and management firm, The Pinkubator. Cindy, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thanks for having me. I'm ready to jump into our lightning round. I'm a fan. I love listening to these podcasts. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Well, I guess you teed it up, so let's do it. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, very first job. Mm, So very first job was probably at a Clinique counter, but I love to ask people, even when I interview them, the very first way they made money. So I need to share mine, which was I used to make my big brothers pay for me to bring them things from the refrigerator to the couch because they were so lazy. That is so smart. So the hustle started early, ladies. (laughs) How much like how much do you charge for a soda? I I had steep rates. I think that they really never actually gave me cash. I love that. I feel like you've met a lot of interesting people. Like who, who's been the most interesting person you've met who's like lived up to the hype? Okay, so I didn't get to meet him, but this is my idea of fun, which is sort of sick. I went to see Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger deliver a shareholder meeting. Because I, did I too. Did, right? I went to it too. It's the coolest it's thing ever. <laughs> who goes to Nebraska? And goes to the convention center. Same here. You wait online at four in the morning. Um, Exactly. And I think it's there's something about, you know, philosophy of always trying to see the greats play in your life. So he's still on my bucket list to meet, but it totally lived up to the hype to see these two, you know, 70 something year old guys, 80 something now sitting there and giving more or less like a 10 minute update and then talking about all their investments and answering questions for hours. It was that totally lived up to the hype. Yeah, I, that's so funny. I, I did too. Okay, so you were known, this is still lightning round, but you're known as creating the quote unquote first female Viagra. Yes. What is a name that you had for the company that you did not go with? <laughs> okay, so Addy is the name of the product. I would say my other one was going to be Sunevi, which was I Venus spelled backward. Oh. But you guys will not believe this story. There was a group of guys of consultants that actually named pharmaceuticals. We could have a whole episode just on the lunacy of that. And they came in and this was their recommended name. Pornia. No, it's not. And I said, are you joking? Please get out. You're you're lying. (laughs) A hundred percent. I saved the piece of paper. I could not believe it. People got paid to come up with that. 
we paid them and they came up with that. And I was like, get out. Oh and uh, we named it Addie because of a number of reasons, importantly, that I actually loved the character Addison in Grey's Anatomy and what she embodied. Oh, we love in you. Terms you, of women. you really should have started with that. <laughs> yes. There you go. Um, I got to meet Kate Walsh. That's a funny story. I met Kate Walsh and I'm like, can I tell you the story? And she just saw me, you know, fangirling. And she's like, who is this insane woman in pink approaching me? And I'm like, no, trust me, you want to hear this story. And I said, have you read any of the press about the, the so-called female Viagra works different? And she said, yeah, I've seen that. And I said, I named it after your character in Grey's Anatomy. She said, hold on, let me call Shonda. And I'm like, oh, please call Shonda. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> so, That's amazing. Crazy. What's the last TV show you've binge watched? Okay, I have to keep it real here. Love is Blind. Yeah, I'm, I'm, why are you I'm, embarrassed? I'm obsessed. Well, this the greatest is show of our generation. This is why I got to tell you. So I've gone all the way through and there was such a deficit in my life that I realized I was even willing to watch Love is Blind subtitled. So now I've gone all the way through Love I is Blind. <laughs> and I'm so mad they don't have the reunion show on Netflix. Wait, that is, yes, wait, hold on. <laughs> I watched Love is Blind, but in the American version, and of then course. I watched the Japanese version subtitled. Oh, haven't gone there yet. Now I need to do that. And they have a Brazilian one, but I have not yet watched that. I've watched that. They don't have the Brazilian reunion show and it's leaving a void Thank in my life. Thank you for letting me know. I don't want to waste my time. I know you're welcome. <laughs> if you get one song that you can listen to on repeat, what is it? While you're driving, I'll give you a prompt. Probably I have to go with something from Eminem. I feel so predictable saying lose yourself, but it is the hype song of all hype songs. Agreed. Okay, let's get into it. You started your career in a huge pharmaceutical companies before you started to chase this more entrepreneurial route. What did those early experiences teach you about management and team building? I often feel like we get asked the question for someone graduating college, do they go work at the big company? What are they going to learn there versus following their more entrepreneurial spirits? And your journey is so interesting because you've done both. So I'll tell you, I think that in a very traditional sense, especially right out of school, we think of careers as a ladder. And I'll tell you, the exciting stuff didn't start happening for me until I thought of it differently. And I thought of it as a jungle gym. And once I started swinging toward the things that excited me or the jobs that I felt totally unqualified for, but I wanted to learn, that's when things heated up. So I think if I go back to that end, I do think it's valuable to go learn on somebody else's dime. So I talked to so many students coming, you know, right out of school, wanting to be entrepreneurs. They've grown up watching Shark Tank, God bless them. And they want to immediately start their own business. And I think there's real value in going to learn from entrepreneurs, be in that entrepreneurial environment. You don't have to be in big corporate, but go and learn how they do things before you maybe step out on your own. At least that was what worked for me. I switched from big environments, not immediately into entrepreneurship, but I stepped into smaller and smaller innovative companies to learn the ropes before I had the courage to do it for myself. I love that. And, and something that Danielle and I definitely agree with. I want to talk about developing and testing Abby. It's a long process, I, I believe, yes. from watching long. Some, some movies, uh, yes. from drug development <laughs> to approval. And you faced many, many roadblocks along the way. Can you just take us to time and place when you found out you did not get approved by the FDA? 
Oh, where were you? What was that moment? So brutal. And you're so right, Carly. It's, you know, these are like 18 year kind of processes. They take forever. You know, you, when you're developing a drug, you're doing it, they're blinded, right? You don't know they're placebo controlled. Are they on real drug? Are they on placebos? And you don't know until the studies are completed, the blind is broken. And I knew our data looked good. And then you submit to the FDA and you wait for their review. So I was, I knew the data looked good. So I'm waiting for this approval. I'm so excited. And I traveled that day. I was in New York. I was flying back to Raleigh, which is where the company is located. And, you know, the whole team had like the champagne chilling on ice. We were getting our approval. We knew it was the date. And I landed at the airport. My assistant called and said, Hey, you got a note from the FDA. You were rejected. And I said, don't tell anybody. It was my first reaction. Like, just hold on. And then I sat down and try to process it. And I was just paralyzed sitting at the airport for what felt like hours. I finally had to face the music. I picked myself up. I went into the office and I said to everybody, like, come join around the table. And everybody's like, come in, you know, smiles. Like, this is the moment we've been waiting for. And I delivered the news and I said, we've been rejected by the FDA. Go home and work on your resumes. And it was brutal. You know, just the the tears. I waited till the last car left the parking lot. I completely broke down in my office, you know, went home, took to the bed, cried it out. And, um, and I tell this story often, but that weekend, a woman reached out to me. I'd never met. And she had been in the clinical trials for Addie. I didn't know her. She didn't know me. And she said, I need to meet with you. And I feel like there was some intervention here. She lived in DC. I was in Raleigh. I thought, oh, I'll do anything to not sit here at my house struggling with this issue. I got in the car. I drove to several hours. I met her in a coffee shop. And basically, she sat and told me her story of struggling with this issue. She'd raised two beautiful boys. She loved her husband. She ran her own company like us, totally type A. And she said to me, I have succeeded in every aspect of my life other than this. And when she said that, I thought, if that is not the portrait of a woman, I don't know what it is. A million times she'd raised her hand. She'd said, hey, something's wrong. Something's changed. And she'd been patted on the shoulder and told, just chill, just relax, take a vacation. All of those things we do that are actually so not constructive and invalidate the concerns of women. And it was this like lightning bolt reminder to me of why I was doing this in the first place. And it was for women like her, like me, to have a choice and an option for our concerns. So I went back in, I gathered the team around the table on Monday and I said, hey, guess what? We're gonna fight the FDA. And my IT guy said, uh, can you do that? And I said, well, we're about to find out. So that was uh, the crazy moment. I gotta ask, like, did you have this moment that was like, if this was male Viagra, yes. which is FDA approved, like just walk us through. I mean, like, oh, did listen. you just have this moment like WTF? Oh, Listen, I've got to tell you, I, I think that the double standard, I used to actually make the joke to my investors who, God bless them, were hanging with me, despite the fact that we've been turned down, despite the fact that I was doing something that seemed a little bit insane in terms of fighting the government for women's sexual pleasure, that, oh my gosh, I'm just going to turn around, do clinical studies in men and take it back through and watch how the process is different. And the reason I say that is in society as a rule, so forget just forget Addy for a second. Just look at men's health versus women's health drugs. You see a very different story in terms of the timeline to go through, the agency, the review process. I say it all the time. When Viagra was approved, it was fast-tracked for approval. What does that mean? We thought that the fact that men weren't getting it up was a national emergency. So we raced it to approval in six months. It took me six years 
And I think that on a lot of that underpinning is commentary on how we value, if you will, the biology of the sexes a little bit differently. And there is basic human bias because of how this is knitted into our societal fabric in terms of how we feel about these issues. And I think we can be, it's very dangerous that we can act like we're protecting women and in that protection, we're removing optionality for them to make in terms of their own healthcare with their providers. So talk to me a little bit about the feedback that the FDA actually gave you on, on yeah. why, speaking about that, it, it wasn't yeah. approved and then how the fight played out. So their first response to us was that they felt the effect was modest. And I think modest could be misconstrued as minimal right? And modest actually is quite meaningful in all products that work on the areas of the brain. So I'll give a parallel of depression, right? If we were to treat somebody who's severely depressed, our goal is to not make them euphoric. Our goal is back basically to restore them to a normal that they once knew. And I think that's really when we looked at this and we went through this with the FDA, we were looking at scales for women the female sexual function index is the scale that these drugs are measured against. And the movement was back into the range of their peers who weren't struggling with this issue, who didn't report being bothered by something that had changed in terms of their libido. So that was really the starting point. I'll tell you what really happened. And what happened is we listened to women. It's actually a mandate of the FDA to have, there's a, there's a focus called patient-focused drug development. Right. So in areas of unmet medical need, who should we be talking to if not the patients that are struggling with it? In fact, the FDA themselves declare that. And so in response to our challenge back to their credit, they opened their doors and they had very public meetings talking to women. Can you imagine for a second that women like arranged for childcare, took off of work, flew across country, shared their most personal struggle in the bedroom at a federal agency, but they did in spades and like those are they're the heroes of this story that they stood at a federal agency explained what was happening and what it meant to their life and i think once we got into that conversation we were having a very different scientific dialogue as well so crazy story <laughs> it is and you know eventually you do get fda approval and yes. you sell your company for a billion dollars to value yes yes and then then you took the company back. I, it, this There's, is I. This is why I was so excited for this interview. Like, what what happened? So tell me you took your vacation. Oh my god! I got to tell you, it didn't quite go that way. I'm such a disappointment to my girlfriends. I did buy a pair of really hot pink shoes, so that was my like. Okay, we sold it for a billion dollars. What did you do? My answer is I woke up the next day and I went back to work because that's what I love doing. And I love this mission. When we set out on this, my goal wasn't to create a you know, blockbuster drug. The goal was to change this conversation about women and sex forever and to change the narrative and to change, in essence, a system in which women's health is so often overlooked. And we end up with scorecards that look like 26 drugs for men and their sexual complaints and zero for women. That just didn't make sense for me. So when I sold the business, we got approval once the FDA had a huge sort of public meeting and they invited an expert scientific committee to review our data and they voted overwhelmingly to approve. FDA approves. Two days later, I announced I'm selling it to this global pharmaceutical company. You know, they're going to make the dream come true, have it available for women everywhere. And then they literally don't launch it. 
And I was crushed. So to your question, that was a very long answer to say, no, I didn't take a vacation because I was rocking in the corner in tears. Like this cannot have happened. Women cannot have fought this hard for us to still not be able to get it. And why? Because I don't, and in doing research for this, I still don't understand why didn't they bring it to market? So Valiant, if you follow the industry, Valiant was the darling. The day I sold it to them, their stock price was at an all-time high. And then they had some uh, trips and stumbles that caused their business to decline. Their stock price went down. And basically, they were focusing all their attention on saving the existing business. So the truth is, there's no real conspiracy here or anything else. This was the last thing in the door the last acquisition, and they were putting resources toward the established business, not launching the new one. And that is what gave me the room to go in and say, okay, give it back. I do think the first time I said, give it back, they, they did laugh out loud. <laughs> they said, okay, wait, hold on, we'll get to it, right? Was They really, I think, thought, we'll get to it eventually. We're gonna stabilize the business, we'll get to it eventually. But when I had written that contract, I had really specific performance obligations. You know, you live and you learn. I'd sold one business before. I didn't have this kind of governing principles on the back end of the transaction, on the royalties that were due. And so I wrote things like how much they'd spend on education or how many salespeople would call on OBGYNs to educate them. And they were in breach of doing those. So it gave me leverage. And ultimately, I got it back and kept the billion dollars. And that's what I invest in other female founders today. Not many people, when they disagree with their mm. manager at work or how a project is going at work, can be like, well, I'm just going to take it that's and right. you know, spin it off myself. Like That's not the normal yeah. course of what happens in most workplaces. So what is your yeah. advice for those listening? Of when you see a project is not going the way you think it deserves to go or the way you really want it and believe in, and want to champion it to go, how yeah. to respond, like what to do. I think my lesson along the entire way is that, you know, success doesn't come from having all the answers. Success comes from having the courage. And ultimately it was those moments where I was being tested, I think. And we all, we all go through those over the course of our career. And I think those moments of testing are how much do you want it? How much do you care about this idea that you would be willing to walk if they wouldn't do it that way. I think those are just, those moments of testing are an opportunity to check yourself for how deep is this conviction and, and what do I wanna sacrifice in order to see it all the way through? There have been a ton of sacrifices right along the way in doing it. Life was hell when I was challenging the FDA. It still you know, lingers to this day. I think people treat this story as a controversy as opposed to what it should be, which is just a new medical treatment for an enormous number of women who deserve access to medication, right? It's still loaded because of that choice that I made, but it was the only choice I could make in order to see it all the way through to the finish line. I want to talk about where you are focused now, which is yeah. to make women really rich, which <laughs> I could not love a, a tagline more. That's great. So tell me more. I'm like, this sounds great. Sign yeah. me up. Yeah. <laughs> Sex, money, let's go, ladies. I think the things that are taboo are so fascinating to me. I'm so drawn to them in the terms of the things we don't say out loud, right? Why don't we talk about it? Like, why don't we talk about if we struggle with issues in the bedroom? Why are we embarrassed to even bring it up or to talk about it with our girlfriends? Why don't we make a basic assumption that it could be something biological that we could address? I think it's so taboo 
for women to sort of declare ambition in a way and to declare any money motivation whatsoever. I mean, we're, we're taught from such a young age, I think it's not ladylike, if you will, to speak about that. I'll give an example. In our incubator, we do pajama parties in the incubator. We bring in eighth grade girls, and we just have a hell of a lot of fun taking them through, building a resume, presenting all of those things. And when the very first group came in, the teachers came in before all of the, the students and they said, hey, on the bus ride over, the girls were talking and one of them wants to ask you how much money you have. <laughs> she said, I told her she, she, can't, she can't do that. And I was like, why? Have her ask. And sure enough, right? The very first question, she's like, how many zeros in a billion? She's like asking all these questions. And I thought, isn't it funny though, that we immediately mute that. And really all she wants to do is understand like, how do I do that? And I think, you know, it's not about money. I've never met anybody wildly successful who was in it just for the money, right? Not wildly successful and content. They're all in it for the impact, I think, but money can be a conduit and a piece of power, I think in order to get the things that you want to see in this world. It's an opportunity for me, for example, now post-exit to invest in other products that I want to see in this world that probably would be turned down at most typical VC tables. So it's why I, I love it. Rich in more ways than financial. I hope I'll make people rich in terms of emotional richness, their, their bedroom, <laughs> in, in terms of their sexual health, rich on a number of, of layers, I think. But again, I do love talking about the money piece. Sydney, you're, you're getting to meet a lot of entrepreneurs and founders right now. Yeah, yeah. If there's a theme, what is one or two things that you see most get into people's way? Mm. I think the biggest issue right now in entrepreneurship is our belief that funding is the destination. I think it is the construct of TV shows of the dialogue in entrepreneurship. And we think that, oh my God, they got the check, they've arrived. And you guys know this <laughs> just like I do. That minute that first check comes in, you start to sweat and you're sweating because now you gotta pay it back and then some, right? You've gotta make a return. And those people are now owners alongside of you. I think it's the biggest arrogance right now in entrepreneurship is this idea that money is everywhere and that if I get money, I've done it. And that concerns me. Or there's a celebration, if you will, before there's execution. And I think that just sets up a um, psychology for founders that is untenable when the real <laughs> moment of truth comes and it gets hard. I've seen, for example, wonderful founders, they've won all of these awards and accolade for their concept. And it's awesome. Their concept is so clever. But then they come to, oh my God, but now I have to make my concept. Now I have to sell my concept. And it, those moments become much more difficult and they fall apart. We actually, for a little while, we were like, when we hear someone raise, should we start sending them like <laughs> condolence notes? Yes, it's uh, so you don't. I don't think it's you realize so that you are selling a piece of the company and there is so much growth and excitement that can come from that if you have the right partners, but it's also, you know, a real inflection point for the company as well. Well, now they own your company too, right? Yeah. And I think we, it's missed often um, among entrepreneurs. So we have a listener question from Catherine. Oh, yeah. She wants to know, how have you thought about hiring throughout your career and how do you build teams you can trust? Oh, I love this question. Okay. So hiring is, I care almost nothing about the pedigree. 
and I care deeply about whether or not they fit the culture of the organization. And I think that I'm looking for that it factor, if you will. The truth is, and they're probably abundantly qualified, right? By the time they've made it to my desk, but it is that differentiator of do they fit the culture? I hire owners and I hire owners who, you know, are all in, in every way. And my commitment back to them is I make them owners. I give them a piece of the company because that's why I did it in the first place. And that's how I know they will have skin in the game and every decision that we make together in terms of how early they show up in the morning, how late they go, how they spend the money of the business. We own a company together. So that's a big piece of my hiring process is thinking that through of that it factor. And for me, it's ownership. Do you have a go-to interview question? I do. It's actually the one that we talked about earlier, which is what's the first way you made money? And I'm telling you, it's such a good interview question because most people hear it as what was your first job? And they, you know, they answer it with a lot of formality and they're already into the, the resume. And what I'm really listening for is how early did the motor turn on, right? And I I tell this interview question a lot of, or a woman that came in to interview for a sales position of mine, and she answered the question and she answered it as her first job. So she got into the resume and then she thought for a second and she said, wait, but that wasn't the first way I made money. I said, great, tell me that story. And she said, when I was little, my parents had this incredible garden and my mom grew the most beautiful tomatoes and she'd put them in pretty baskets and asked me to bring them to the neighbors. But when I'd get to their front door, I would sell them to them. (laughs) I said, you're hired, right? Because I can see, I could see in her everything. I was hiring her for a sales position. And that's how she showed up really early in life. And I think when you allow people to talk about those stories, you do see that that motor that's going to be with them every day in your company as well. Final question. Who's someone else we should have on this show? Gail Becker with Kali Power, if you haven't already talked to her. Gail had two sons, celiac disease. She was a single mom working all the time. And they basically said to her, you know, every, they were like, mom, make us the pizza, which was like a weekend treat. And she thought, why can't I buy this? So she created it. And she really created that entire market of off the shelf cauliflower crust pizzas. She's an amazing success story. I love that. Cindy, what a treat to talk to you. We could talk to you for hours. Likewise. Congratulations on everything you've done and also what you're doing now. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And we've also got another podcast pop cultured with the skin where each week we're covering the pop culture moment everyone's talking about new episodes drop every tuesday